Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Welcome. Take your Bibles if you would. The title of this message is The Power of an Indestructible Life. It's found, that phrase, from Hebrews 7.16. But I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalms 110. Psalms being in the middle of your Bible. Psalms 110. We're going to look at that in a moment. But first, as we go on, I'd like to give you a quote by Octavius Winslow, a Reformed pastor back in the uh, 19th century, in the early 1800s. And I want you to consider what we're celebrating this past week. He says, so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die. And he nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. He had created those men who would one day hold him down and take the hammer and the nails and drive him. He knew personally those men who took the cat of nine tails and whipped him. When they said and blindfolded him and put a hood over him and struck him and said, who hit you? He knew exactly he had created them for that very purpose. Scripture and experience, even if we think of just the biblical concept of what we're speaking of this week, but if we just look at life, Experience informs us that we live in a broken world. We talked about this last week. We see it all around us, right? There is no escaping the fact that injustice, racism, prejudice, class warfare are rampant. There's no shortage of political, cultural, and religious messiahs who come proclaiming that they alone have the answers and demand that we bow down and follow them. In their wake, however, they litter the landscape with broken promises, bitterness, resentment, frustration, and anger. Eventually, this leads the populace to feelings of hopelessness, looking for another savior to come and to lead them to whatever their self-designed promised land may look like. Through the writings of the prophets, the law, and the Psalms, however, Yahweh had given Israel four promises. They're here on the monitor. The first one is the promise of a Savior to rescue us from our sin. That's what you and I need for the most, is we need to be saved from God. We see the second one was the promise of a prophet to proclaim God's word. We need a word that's anchored in a truth, not someone's feeling or some version of the truth that changes with the times. We need an anchor. I, I would always ask you, what, what is your philosophy, your worldview? What it, is it anchored or is it, or is it like a buoy that just moves with the waves? Or is it anchored deep? We need a truth that is true for all times, for all people, for all places. Thirdly, was a promise of a king to rule in justice, peace, and righteousness. Every two to three years, we have someone who will come and say, we can bring you that, but yet they do not. We cannot find it in any man, woman, no human, no, no AI can bring us these things. But then lastly, the one that we'll be looking at is the promise of a priest to reconcile us back to God. Now, a priest is something that you and I know the word, but to be honest, we don't really have priests in the same way in which Scripture had priests. Now, the purposes of those four promises was to make right what went wrong. You and I know there is something wrong in this world. It is broken. There doesn't seem to be much hope in this world. Each of these gifts were promised to God by his children, or promised by God to his children, I should say, and was meant to be embraced, to be enjoyed and shared with others. These gifts not only display the love and faithfulness of a father, but also a source of encouragement, strength, and hope to a world that is desperately need of these things. Today, we're going to consider the fourth promise, as I said. That's the promise of a priest who can reconcile us to God. And to many of you, you may say, reconcile to God. I didn't know there was a problem with God and I. 
The promise is fulfilled and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who gave his life to satisfy the wrath of God. What many of us do not understand is that we may not have a problem with God, but God does have a problem with us. And we're going to explore that this morning for that is why we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. He not only came to satisfy the wrath of God, but also to bring us into the presence of the Almighty. In Psalms 110, it's going to be here on the monitor as well, but looking at those first four verses, the psalmist says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, speaking of a ruler, who will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. But it's this last line. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father, now we're going to open up a scripture on, a, on, a, on an Easter Sunday when we should be speaking just about the resurrection. And we're going to talk about a man that's surrounded in mystery, Melchizedek. But Father, to, to understand what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing, even at this very moment, we need to understand this, this strange man named Melchizedek, a high priest, one who is a high priest forever, and what a priest does. So open up our minds and hearts as we consider this. And Father, may your spirit have free reign, and may we respond to that work. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, to understand this passage, we first must understand who priests are and their purpose, at least when we're thinking of scriptural or, or ancient priests. Wayne Grubin writes, you'll see it here on the monitor, that in the Old Testament, the priests were appointed by God to offer sacrifices. They also offered prayers and praise to God on behalf of the people. In doing so, they sanctified or set apart the people or made them acceptable to come into God's presence, albeit only in a limited way during the Old Testament period. So they were standing before God, a man between, and they would speak for God, would speak to them, and they would speak to the people, and then they would offer themselves as a mediator. The Old Testament book of Leviticus describes the qualifications, the expectations, and the responsibility of a priest. Moses, many of us know of Moses, parting the Red Sea, Exodus, so on and so forth. His brother Aaron was the first priest of Israel along with his sons. The entire tribe of Levi was set apart to serve alongside them in the tabernacle in the temple and conduct the sacrifices. So the question we may need to ask, but why is a priest necessary? Now, we're indebted to the teachers of Capitol Hill Baptist who laid this out for us. And so I want to first begin by giving just a brief story of sacrifice in Scripture. At the heart of the story of the Bible is the story of sacrifice. You cannot get away from it. Ironically, this story begins with a colossal failure of self-denial. Uh, when Adam and Eve indulged their desire to be God's equal, they plunged, or the failure of self-denial, they plunged themselves and the rest of us into a world under God's curse of sin and death when they rebelled against his rule. And now we live now in a world in which sacrifice would be the order of the day. As the narrative of Scripture unfolds, the need, the nature, and the effects of Scripture or sacrifice are slowly revealed to us. We'll divide the storyline into six episodes. So number one, the first sacrifice that you and I get to is offered by Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. There's no mention of sin or blood with the sacrifice. The Bible calls it an offering or a gift. And the idea is one of tribute to a great king and a submission to the lordship of Yahweh, of God. Now, in that case, we know that Cain brought the, the first fruits of, of his fruits, of his vegetables and so on. And Cain, who, or Abel, who was a shepherd, brought a lamb. The next sacrifice is recorded in Genesis 8. 
and it's after the flood. Noah offer up, offers up a variety of clean animals as a whole burnt offering. It suggests the idea of a gift, and this gift has an effect on God. The Bible tells us that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And that's important for us to remember. And never again, does God, sa God says, will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. The sin that prompted God's judgment, though, remained in the hearts of Noah and his children. But God promises to never again to destroy all humanity with a flood. Thirdly, God not only promised to never again destroy humanity, but he also promises to bless all nations. In particular, he promises Abraham a son who would be a blessing to all. Then interestingly, the Bible's next recorded sacrifice occurs in Genesis 22, when God speaks shocking words to Abraham and his son. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Incredibly, Abraham obeys. And once again, this idea seems to be that of a tribute to, to the lordship of Yahweh. It all, everything belongs to God. And he has the right to take it back if he demands so. At the last second, we know the story. God stops Abraham. The test of Abraham's devotion is over, but not the sacrifice. And here's what's interesting in this passage. God provides a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. It turns out that God will accept a substitute. And what's more, God will provide the substitute for us. Now we jump 400 years later. Now we move from Genesis to Exodus. Pharaoh is refusing to release the Israelites from slavery. God promises to strike down the firstborn male of every creature in Egypt. But the Lord promises to spare the firstborn of Israel if they take a year-old lamb without defect and sacrifice it and smear its blood on the doorframe of the houses. God says that he will see the blood of the sacrifice and then he will pass over their homes sparing them the judgment that is Egypt will face for their disobedience. What's more, God says this sacrificial meal will be a sign that will set Israel apart from the other nations as God makes a distinction <clears throat> excuse me, between Israel and the rest of the world, consecrating them as a special people. That very night, Israel is spared because of that sacrifice. That special night is called Passover, as he passed over. It was observed just this past Wednesday by the Jews. Now, up to this point, there have been less than a dozen instances of sacrifice recorded in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be a major theme, but that changes with the giving of the law. An entire book of the Bible, as we spoke about earlier, Leviticus, is largely given over detailing all the different sacrifices that Israel is to offer God. There are fellowship offerings, whole burnt offerings, so on and so forth. But the most important sacrifices are those that atone for sin and guilt. Those done on purpose and those done unintentionally. Now... All the pieces that have been slowly revealed finally come together. First, only clean animals without defects can be sacrificed. Prominent is the taking of life, the shedding of a blameless victim's blood. Sin is so important that it causes the death of an innocent one. And when we're talking of the shedding of blood, we're talking about the whole shedding of all of its blood. It was a bloody scene. It was a, I'm sure the sights and the smells of temple and tabernacle sacrifice to you and I would be very offensive today. But to them, it was how their way of life was. Again, the idea of substitution is prominent. We're told that if anyone brings a sacrifice, he was to lay his hand on the head of that burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf. In other words, someone innocent, something innocent, I should say, will die in place of those who are guilty. It's a way of saying this sacrifice stands for me and what's about to happen should happen to me and it's taking my 
place. These sacrifices now begin and end every single day. At the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, these sacrifices continued. They're presented by priests who serve as intermediaries between God and his sinful people. Now, there are additional sacrifices that mark the beginning of each week, each month, and each season. So these priests were busy continually, continually offering these sacrifices. And at the pinnacle of this entire system of sacrifice was the Day of Atonement. The high priest alone takes the blood of the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, a, a place in the tabernacle in the temple that no one can go but the high priest, and then only once a year. And he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic throne of God, to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. And that's where this theme in the Bible stops, or at least stalls. Century follows century as you work your way through the Old Testament and nothing changes. No new sacrifices are introduced. The old ones are just endlessly repeated day after day, week after week, year after year without end. And therein lies the problem. They obviously were not getting rid of sins. It was only temporary. It was just God overlooking it for a period of time. They increasingly became a nauseating reminder of just how sinful the people remained. What we learn is that repentance and not ritual is what God desires. But for Israel, repentance had vanished. And all that remained was just ritual. And so God banished the nation to exile. If you know their history, they were banished to, the, to, the, to uh, Babylonia, what you and I know as Iran, Iraq area, and so on and so forth. And without the temple, which was destroyed, there could be no sacrifice. Even today, Israel does not have a temple where they can continue the sacrifices. And if there is no sacrifice that God will accept, then God's people are as exposed to God's judgment as Egypt was on the night of the Passover. And so that's where you and I stand today is exposed to the wrath of God. Now again, as Israel approached what we call the beginning of the first century, they find themselves not only enslaved by the Romans, but also entrapped by the false teaching of their Jewish religious leaders. They're entangled with the spirit of the age. And they have no hope other than the promise of the Messiah's coming. Those four promises that we looked at earlier. A savior, a prophet, a priest, a king. Their hopelessness, <clears throat> excuse me, is captured with the Christmas carol that many of us know, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. That was their hope, the Messiah. May he come soon. Now as the remnant of Israel cries out for the mercy of the Father and the fulfillment of his promises, the Apostle Paul writes, seen here on the monitor to follow along with me, is that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. So now something dramatically has changed. The fullness of time has come. God is about to do away with those day-to-day, -day, endless, uh, temporary sacrifices that in the end were not doing much at all. What we see is the promise of a priest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrew writes of Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise when he writes in Hebrews 5, and being made perfect, he, speaking of Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, that one that was promised in Psalms 110. He says Jesus is that high priest. He is the new Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek 
other than having a great name, is a shadowy man of mystery, speculation, and wonder. If you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 14, it's good to read it, and it also gives me a chance to take a drink of water real quickly. Genesis is obviously the first book in the Bible. In verse 14, we're introduced for the first time to this man, this shadowy man. Genesis 14, verse 17, we saw that Abraham had some servants and some of his family members were stolen, were taken by a raiding party. He goes back and and takes them back. But on his way back home, he stops at this city. And it says here in verse 17 of Genesis 14, in his return, after his return, uh, speaking of Abraham, from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheved, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies in your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now what Hebrews tells us, it it explains this, because now because of it drops off until you see him in Psalms, and then we see him in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek's name means my king is righteousness or is righteous. The city of Salem that he was the king over means peace. It is a, actually, it was the city that would become known as Jerusalem. Later in scripture, King David would capture that city and rename it Jerusalem. Now, Melchizedek is a mystery in that not much information is given about his origins, his personality, or character but also that we see that he was greater than Abraham because Abraham gave tithes to him. To one you gave tithes usually was greater than you. So in this case, we see that even though Abraham is the father of Israel, the father of many nations, it is Abraham that shows respect to this man. Uh, Many believe that there's different types of things. Who is this man? Some believe that it was was Jesus before it was a Christophany and then it was Jesus. I I don't tend to believe that. Uh, Many believe he was just a man who worshipped Yahweh. Uh, One that I think has more weight is that this was Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, I know we think of the flood and then we think of Abraham, but Shem would have been alive during the time of, of Abraham. So many believe that this was Shem, the son of Noah. Though we do not know much about this man, it doesn't matter what the speculations say. We do not know that scripture tells us that Jesus' priesthood would be similar to his. And that Jesus' role as a priest would be greater than Aaron's. So let me give you five ways. Stay with me. This will make sense in a moment. First, when we look at uh, the Melchizedek's or Jesus' priesthood according to Aaron's, is that his was a universal priesthood while Aaron's was only to Israel. It was a royal priesthood. He was a priest king, speaking of Melchizedek, while Aaron was actually subject to kings. It was a righteousness and peace priesthood, whereas Aaron could not provide either of those things. It was also a personal priesthood. Melchizedek was a priest because of his character and of his position, whereas Aaron's was based on descent and, and uh, hereditary. It had nothing to do with his character. And obviously, as we go through Scripture, we see that there were many priests who were very just awful, awful men. But it was also an eternal priesthood while Aaron was limited by time because he was human. He would die. Again, in Hebrews chapter 6, 19, here on the monitor, we say that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, something that you can bank on. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone forever or as a, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus did not just go into the Holy of Holies, which did not exist in that day in the same way as the, well, it did exist in that time, but Jesus never went in there. But Jesus went into the Holy of Holies that is in heaven before the Father. While the Levitical sacrifices were repeatedly endless, were repeated endlessly, the book of Hebrews draws our attention to the fact that Christ was sacrificed once. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all, the author writes in Hebrews, when he offered himself. Again in 9.12, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. That which bulls and goats could not do, Jesus' blood was able to. And again in 9.26 of Hebrews, now Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament had only been a picture. It was a teaching aid uh, designed, as Paul says in Galatians, to lead us to Christ, that great high priest, and to recognize him when he would appear. Now, now that he was here, the picture of the sacrifice was no longer needed. One of the things that we find in Matthew's gospel, I believe that at the death of Christ, that the, that the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was actually torn in two, no longer putting a separation there. Now this leads us to the final thing to consider. Or I'm sorry, let me go back. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, that it's impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. You need to understand that. The animal sacrifices could not make right what went wrong. It cannot repair the world. It cannot repair and, and make and restore and reconcile relationships, whether vertically or horizontally, between us, us and God or between us and our families and friends. But he goes on to say, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's uh, death on the cross turned aside God's wrath and satisfied the penalty of our sin. That which was placed and required of animals is no longer necessary for Christ to accomplish that. Through that long explanation, we see that not just Israel, but all of humanity needed a priest to mediate on our behalf before a holy God. We need a priest to contend with God, to enable us to approach God and to teach us how to worship him. That's what a priest does. You see, before us to become before a holy God, we must know how we approach an almighty God. The Bible tells us to fear him. That's the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. It says it is, a, it is a fearful thing to fall into hands of God. For he is almighty, he is a God of justice. And you and I live in a world that is tainted with inherited sin. So I want to ask the question, how does Christ perform that office of a priest? What does that mean to you and I, 1,996 years or something, 85 years left? How does that mean? Well, you'll see it there. Christ performs the office of a priest by offering himself once as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and by making continual intercession for us before God. Jesus is able to perform this office by the power of his indestructible life for death could not hold him, the tomb could not seal him. An indestructible life. One who could not truly be defeated, but could defeat sin and death in the grave. Now today, we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Death has no power over him. His death secured definite salvation for God's children. He didn't make just salvation possible, but he made a definite payment for sin he was the perfect sacrificial substitute as the writer of Hebrews again notes that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest a holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens we had that substitute that was perfect that could fulfill all that God requires and what does God require perfection he says, if you want to see heaven, if you want to be reconciled with me, you must be perfect 
as the Father is perfect. I think if you and I are honest with ourselves, we know that we're not perfect. If you're not quite sure if you are or you're not, then just ask your spouse. I'm sure they would tell you. I'm sure your children would tell you as well. But really our hearts betray us as we have trouble making eye contact in the mirror in the middle of the night. Knowing that we stand before God hopeless, in need of a savior, in need of a king, in need of a prophet, in need of a priest to come between us. I love the story of Job. Many of you know the story of Job, the one uh, in the scriptures, Old Testament. He was uh, was cursed by God. He was was, uh, in a, a cosmic battle with Satan, God and Satan. And Satan says, let me, let me do what I can to Job and he'll curse you and die. And God says, you can do anything but take his life. So he does everything. He kills all of his children. He takes all of his finances. He even gets his wife to turn against him. And then he begins to give him boils and all sorts of things. And then he has friends that are just, for the most part, worthless. And his friends are telling him, why don't you just go to God and tell him that you're a righteous man, that you've done nothing wrong, that you haven't deserved this. And maybe that's your thought. You don't deserve hell. You don't deserve God's justice or divine wrath. But Job says, who am I to go to an almighty, the ultimate power of the universe, a holy God? Who am I to go and and, and charge my case against him? He says, oh, I wish I had a daysman who could stand before me. And I remember finding out what that word daysman, it means mediator. In the ancient days when two people would have an argument, they didn't have courts as you and I have courts, civil courts and so on and so forth. So they would take an elder, a learned man, someone they trusted. And he would take the two people and he would bring them together. Maybe one was rich, maybe one was poor, or maybe you're not. But in either way, the daysman would stand between the two and he'd put one hand on one man's shoulder and the other and he says, now tell me what's going on. And then he would be able to mediate. But who is there that that has the power to, to stand as a man and understand me, but also put his hand on God's shoulders and understand God? What does the Bible tell us? There's only one who is fully, truly God and one who is fully, truly man. Jesus Christ, the one mediator. Only God can stand between us and a God who's ready to pour out his wrath. There's three ways Jesus functions as our high priest. The one, he was the perfect sacrifice. The one to end all sacrifices. The one who could deal with our sin completely, past, present, and future. Peter tells us that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness by his wounds he had been healed. In other words, it says that when Jesus died, not only did he pay the penalty of our sin, that which God required for the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, so that is each and every one of us. As beautiful as little Leah was here earlier today, she herself is a sinner, condemned by God unless God, by his grace, draws her to himself. But not only did he pay for the penalty of our sin, but he also did the power of sin. He canceled the power of sin. In other words, Satan has no power over us. We now can say no to sin. We can fight sin, and that's what he calls us to do. But not only that, the greatest one, the one I'm looking forward to, is the one that still has not been done. And that's when God will deliver us from the presence of sin. No longer will I struggle with sin. No longer will I have broken relationships. No longer will I have any mixture of anger or frustration or bitterness or malice with my love for my family and for others. Christ comes, that will be all taken care of. He says here in Hebrews that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. Again, another big word, but all that means is finding favor with God. Think of it. You've heard me say this before. Someone does you much harm. They mistreated you. They stole from you. A good friend betrayed you, whatever it may be. And they come and they ask for forgiveness. And you may say, I forgive you. And you may do so. 
But let me ask you, does that reinstate trust? You still will struggle with them, will you not? Oh, I forgive you, but I, I don't trust you. Or your relationship may still be strained. But what we see here is that God not only accepts what Jesus did and says, I paid for it in full. I accept that. But he says, I now look at you with favor as one of my children. I love how the gospel primer looks at it. Is that when God sees his children, he never looks at us with any mixture of wrath in his love for us when we disobey. Because we disobey. We blow it probably blew it this morning right come in here if you drove on the freeway most chances are you most likely did but here's the thing is God made it perfect he satisfied all that God does and now God looks at us not as children of disobedience or vessels of wrath but he looks at us as his adopted children Ephesians says walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself of us a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. You see this here on here on the screen. I want you to get this. Christ came to die as an effective penal substitution. That penal means uh, that which was due. Think of it as, as someone who does a crime. They, they get into the penal system. It was effective penal substitute to propitiate the wrath of God and to make atonement for his people. As a high priest, this is what he did, not through bulls and goats, but through the blood of Christ. This is the great exchange. See, on the cross, God took all of our sins, all of my filth, all of my bad thoughts, all the things in which I've hurt people, and he put it on Christ. We think of the movie, we think of the scripture that says, when, the, when, the, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sun was darkened between noon and 3 p.m. God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus Christ. See, he didn't see Christ on that cross. He saw me, he saw you. Taking on me that which I have done wrong. But the great exchange is that God then took the righteousness of his perfect son. Imagine it, 33 years, Jesus never did any wrong, fulfilled everything in the law, was perfect. Could you imagine having him as a brother? That had been just terrible. Ah, why don't you do this like Jesus do? Why can't you do your homework like Jesus? It just must have been terrible. You can understand why his, his brothers and, and sisters for a while did not believe him or believe in him. But he took all that righteousness and he took it from Jesus and he gave it to me. See, that's how he finds favor. So when Jesus sees me, even today, even in my weakness, God looks on me on favor because he sees his son. That's what is amazing. Even if you are a Christian today, even on your worst days, he sees Jesus Christ, his son. It's not anything I have done, but what Christ has done for us. So not only did he offer a perfect sacrifice, but here's something that we need to understand, that Jesus continually brings us near to God. He encourages us today, even today, go to God when you're tired. Go to God when you're, when you're heavy laden. Understanding that God loves us. It says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, you and I are now like that high priest in which we can enter the holy of holies. There is no curtain that keeps us from God. There is no priest that keeps us from God. We, you and I, can have a direct relationship with the Father. Jesus said we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's Papa in Arabic, I believe. It's that new relationship that we have. We have a confidence. He lives at the right hand of God as we spoke earlier in the Apostles' Creed. J.C. Rowell writes this. I believe it might be on the screen so you can follow along. It says, that same Jesus who once died for sinners still lives at the right hand of God. 
to carry out the work of salvation, which he came down from heaven to perform. So it's ongoing. He lives to receive all who come unto God by him and to give them power to become the sons of God. He lives to hear the confession of every heavy laden conscience and to grant as an almighty high priest perfect absolution. He lives to pour down the spirit of adoption on all who believe and to enable them, as I said earlier, to cry, Abba, Father. So even at this moment, Jesus is keeping the doors open between you and the Father. That's a wonderful gift that you and I do not deserve. Thirdly, Jesus today as a priest continually prays for us. And this is something we need to understand. This is, this is amazing. You know, we have a prayer chain at church using a, a Slack, I believe, or some type of social media, and people do that and call, and can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? And it's, and it's encouraging to have someone pray for you. But could, could you imagine the power of Jesus Christ himself going to the Father and says, this is what my, your son or daughter wants, needs? Jesus himself prays for us. Romans says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Not did it once, but even today he's interceding for us. Hebrews goes on to say that he is able to say to the uttermost, those who draw near to God, since he always lives to make intercession for them, we have the ear of God. Why? Because Christ is there on the right hand of God, praying for us, pleading for us, advocating a lawyer, so to speak, for us, pleading our crop, pleading our case. First Timothy, if you there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. You know, Richard B. Gaffin, speaking about the prayer of our high priest, seeing this on the screen, he writes in a book, Christ our High Priest, he says, it doesn't matter. And I pray this gives you uh, some encouragement, some, some strength. It doesn't matter how complicated, how desperate, perhaps even hopeless your life has become. No matter how overwhelmed you may feel by your problems, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be sure that he is praying for you now. And through that prayer, he will provide for you the resources to bring you relief or enable you to carry on. The most important thing that you and I need to learn about prayer is this. First, of all, and ultimately, prayer is not something we do, but what Jesus does for us. Jesus fulfills God's promise to send a high priest who will able to make right that which was wrong, to enable us to be reconciled back to God, and that's what we need, back to the garden, God walking among his people. It is not enough to be saved from our sins, to have someone teach us about God, but then not able to approach God in worship and relationship. If it was just to have forgiveness of sin, we still would not be able to enter into his presence, but God made the complete package. Just as the, Jesus as the final universal and divine priest brings us peace with the almighty creator of the universe. In love, he obeyed God, satisfying the wrath of God by paying the penalty of our sin and earning our everlasting righteousness. Our response to this wonderful gift is to accept it as Israel should have done with true repentance. The Bible tells us that the message of John the Baptist, of Jesus, and the disciples was very simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what I want to share with you as we get ready to close here this morning is because he is our high priest, because Jesus is making right all that which went wrong by being our king, our prophet, our priest, our savior, is that you and I are now to respond to what Christ has done through repentance. Repentance, as you're looking here on the screen, is not just saying, I'm sorry. 
No, repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner out of a true sense of his sin understands how sinful he is and his inability to make himself right with God. And by the way, that's what all religions do. That's what all rituals do is they try to make themselves right with God. We do this in the same way. Read our Bibles, go to church, give money, do this, do that. And we're trying to make ourselves right with God, but the Bible tells us that we cannot. But out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God. That's where repentance is. It's a 180 degree turn with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. See, one who has followed, who is truly repented, who is truly saved, will live a life that's pleasing to God. Not that we won't struggle with sin, but we will pursue, we will repent, we'll pursue the things of God. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's not just a a worldly grief in which I'm sorry about the consequences. I'm sorry I got caught. But seeing what sin is, as David said, I have sinned against God and God only. It's a renouncing of it. I no longer will seek pleasure, satisfaction, and comfort from that sin. And a certain commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. For Jesus says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Repentance includes these three things. It includes an intellectual understanding of the facts as we share it through Scripture. It's saying, okay, I understand this now. It includes an emotional approval of the Scriptures. It's, I understand this. I love this. I desire this. I want this. And lastly, a personal decision to turn from it. It's a choice. It's a will. I'm choosing Christ. Final, what we have to understand that repentance, though, is not something that you and I can conjure up ourselves. Repentance is actually a gift from God. Paul instructs Timothy to pray. He says that God may perchance grant them repentance, that they may come to the truth and come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil. You and I, need to respond to the resurrection of Christ with true repentance and faith. Faith is a confident trust in the person of God. That God has accepted what Jesus Christ, that God, excuse me, that God will fulfill his promises. I'd like to close with this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My desire for all that hear me, that may see me at another time and watch this later, is that you will find that blessed hope. Not a hope that's wishful thinking like the world has, but a hope is a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Let me ask you, if you were to stand before Christ and he were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? If your answer is, well, I went to a Christian school, I grew up in a Christian home, that answer would be insufficient. If you say, but I went to church, I tied, that answer is insufficient. If you say, well, my mom put it in my Bible, my grandma went to church, my daddy was a deacon or pastor, whatever it may be, that answer is insufficient. The only answer is I put my trust that the Father has accepted what Christ has done on my behalf. The only reason that I deserve to be in heaven is because what Christ has done for me. I stand in his righteousness and in his righteousness alone. A righteousness that cannot be earned, that cannot be inherited, that that cannot be given to you by any works or any merit of your own, but a gift from the Father. If you hear that voice call, for he says, I call out 
and I draw you to myself. I'm going to ask as Randy comes up and the worship team, I'm just going to ask you just to bow your head just for a moment. Just to take a moment to pause and consider this message, the scriptures, the purposes and the plan of the Father in sending Christ as our high priest. And would you pray and ask how God would want you to respond? Maybe here you need to accept Christ for the very first time. You need to to turn to repentance and faith. If you want to know how you can know for sure that you can go to heaven, I'd ask you to see Randy, myself, Landon, we'd love to share with you before you leave how you can know that Christ would say, enter into my home, a good and faithful servant. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you're struggling in your sin, you're finding yourself fighting it, remember you have a high priest that has accomplished all that you're trying to do. God loves you. He wants you to fight sin. The Bible says that a Christian is one who doesn't practice sin. It's not a character trait. It's not a life habit. I pray if you're here today and you say, well, I'm committed to these things. Then continue to trust And the one who prays for us each and every moment of the day. Somebody close, do you understand the work of Christ as a high priest who came as a substitute, sacrifice for your sin? Have you repented of your sins and turned in faith that God has accepted the work of Christ on our behalf? And would you pray for that wonderful gift of repentance and faith? Are you encouraged, strengthened, and hopeful that Christ is praying for you today? He says, come to me all who are heavy and weary, for his yoke is light. Some of you are carrying burdens that I cannot even imagine. If you're one of Christ, turn towards him. Then I would end trust in the one who has provided all that God has required through his sacrifice as we celebrate the one who is risen and now sets at the right hand of God. Randy, would you close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.